number 543, the text, or the title is The Towel Test. The text is John 13, 1 through 20. This was preached in the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown on July 12, 1970. John, the 13th chapter, we begin to read at the first verse. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and girded himself with a towel. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not know now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. But then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is clean all over, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, You are not all clean. And when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you know what I have just done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, do them. Blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of you all. I know whom I have chosen. It is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I tell you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives anyone whom I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. The roads of ancient Palestine were not paved. They were only trails, and because of this they would leave only on the feet of the traveler mud and dust, cake. 
Because this was the situation in the Middle East, there was an accepted custom throughout that whole land that whenever an individual would enter another person's house, he would first of all have to wash his feet. I'm sure any modern-day healthy housewife would accept this tradition. They thought it was a good one. And if an individual was wealthy enough to be an affluent house owner, he always had a slave available to do this tedious and not very pleasant task of washing the feet of his guests. But you'll remember that the disciples were poor, and in their number they had no slaves. So whenever the disciples would enter another man's lodging, if that man who owned the lodging had not a slave, the disciples themselves had to take turns in washing one another's feet. Whenever they would go into a house at night, whose turn it was, that disciple would take a basin, fill it with water, take off his outer cloak, gird himself with a towel, roll up his sleeves, get down on his hands and knees, and begin to wash his companion's feet. For three years, every night that these men went into a house, one of the disciples would wash the other twelve feet. That is, every night but one. The night when Jesus was to have the Last Supper with his disciples was probably the only night of maybe a thousand that these men spent with their master when one of the disciples did not wash the other disciples' feet. We're not quite sure as to why this custom it was broken on that particular night. Some people think the disciples had a rough day and they were tired and none of them wanted to be bothered with worrying about dirty feet, their own or anyone else's. Luke, in trying to give us some evidence into the background of this particular problem, says that the reason they did not wash their feet that night or why one disciple was not willing to take upon himself voluntarily the role of a slave and, and wash his other, wash his friend's feet, was simply because all day these men had been arguing amongst themselves as to which one was the greatest in God's kingdom. All day they had been feuding and fussing, and they were not in a very good mood when they entered the home of John Mark to sit down and have the last meal with their Lord. They were so upset with each other that no one saw that basin of water, or at least no one wanted to see it. In anger and in silence and in having nothing but ugly feeling towards their fellow man, these twelve, with their Lord, sat down to a meal, a meal which was eaten in silence, a meal that was eaten with a great feeling of anger within at least twelve of those men. These men sat down to eat, and yes, they did so with dirty feet. Now this bothered our Lord, not the fact that their feet were dirty. 
You know your Bible, and you know that the Lord never looks upon an outward appearance of an individual. He's really not concerned whether the hair is long or short, whether the clothes are neat or clean. He looks upon what is important in an individual and his heart. And what upset the Lord this night was not that their feet were dirty, but what upset him was that their hearts were not clean. Their hearts were not as he would hope them to be. Our Lord knew many things this night. He knew that his hour had come to die. He knew that he had come from God and he was on his way back to God. He knew that all authority was given unto him. And he knew also that his disciples, with whom he had been working three years, had missed the whole point of why he had come. Our Lord must have felt great that night. Not only was he going to die on the morrow, but he came to the realization that night for three years he was trying to help to mold these men into being the promoters of his causes which he had begun. And on this night, he realized they had missed the whole point. Our Lord knew that the time was short and that he was going to have to do something to salvage the situation and to get these men shocked back into the reality of why he came and what was their job that they were to do. I don't know if he thought for a while, but at least he too sat in silence and continued his meal. And then all of a sudden, the Bible tells us, he rose from the meal. He took off his, took off his outer coat. He girded himself with a towel. He went and filled the basin full of water. And then he got down on his hands and his knees. And one by one, he washed the feet of each disciple. Now those men, I presume, became very humble. They were shocked. They were dumbfounded. They were silent, all but one of them, and it was only Peter who protested, and Christ quickly silenced him. These men saw our Lord in a way that they had never seen him before. Oh yes, they knew that he had great authority. They knew that he was an individual who could heal the sick, make the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk. They had seen him do these things. But now they understood him in a light that they had never seen him before. Never before had he washed their feet. And suddenly these individuals realized that God was trying to shock them into seeing things as he would want them to see. When it was all finished, Jesus said, you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and, and you're right, for so I am. And I've washed your feet. And if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example of what I have done unto you, you should do unto one another. And our Lord, in that particular instant, with those words and with a towel in his hand, 
was able to show those men something that they had not been able to catch in three years' time. He was able with the Tao to try and show them the true nature of God, the meaning of greatness, and the purpose of discipleship. And in that short, brief time, our Lord brought a group of individuals who should have known better, but who did not, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He gave them the test of the Tao. Now, I don't like to argue with anyone, but I feel oftentimes that our church forefathers made a great mistake. They committed an error of omission when they did not make this particular ritual of feet washing a part of the sacramental system of our church. I know those of you who know of different churches form of government and idea of sacrament, that you know that there are churches that have as a sacrament not only the bread and the cup of the communion table and the water of the baptismal fount, but as a sacrament. Several times a year, the people in the congregation gather together, and they're the teachers and the elders and sometimes the other people, take turns in girding themselves with a towel and getting down on their knees before their brother and washing his feet. That's beautiful. And I often wish that within our church we had this as a particular ceremony, because I am convinced that there is absolutely nothing, nothing, that can shock us quicker into what our Lord has done for us and give to us the message what we are to do unto one another. The towel test does it, ladies and gentlemen, believe me, and if you don't, just try washing your enemy's feet someday. I think if I had my way about it, hanging from every cross and dangling from every communion table would be a towel. A towel so that you could not sit in the house of the Lord without seeing that symbol of service. Without checking your faith with the faith of him who girded himself with a towel. Testing your ideas with the ideas of the one who girded himself with a towel. Just look what happened to those men because of Christ and his towel. Up there in the upper room that night, those men, because of that towel, had to re-examine their whole concept of God. You see, those people did not have the advantage that many of us have. They lived prior to Good Friday and the day of the cross. They lived before Easter morn. There's some excuse for them, but like many of us who should know better, we have a very limited concept of God, so did they. They thought of God as only being one who sits up in the heaven, majestic. They thought of him as God of God, 
Lord of Lords, King of Kings, as the individual who is mighty and majestic, the big boss, the individual who not only created the world, but who ruled the world as well. This was their idea of God, and that God was one that they had to serve. It was their duty and responsibility to come under this great, magnificent, majestic God in heaven and bow before him and only serve him. They knew him in all of his righteousness, but they knew him not in any of his mercy. They knew that God had sent his Son into the world, Jesus Christ. But they thought he had sent him into the world to condemn the world, not to save it and to cleanse it. These individuals knew that Jesus truly was the Son of God, but they knew not God as our Father in heaven. They only saw a partial bit of the totalness of God. They didn't see God in his fullness and in his greatness, in all of his love and in all of his mercy, until his son Jesus Christ girded himself with a towel. They were dumbfounded. They were shocked. They just didn't think God was one of these people who could serve anyone else. He was to be served. Oh, Jesus had told them, I come as the Son of God not to be served, but to serve. My Father is working and I am working still. We're here on earth to serve. But no, these people had the idea that you went to worship to, to serve God. You sang hymns to, to serve God. The things that you do in life that are right you do to please God. And they hadn't got the other side of the picture, but they come to church and they sing and they do what is right so God can serve them. Look at Peter. Jesus was making his way down from disciple to disciple and he came to Peter. Peter pulled back his feet. Lord, you are not going to wash my feet. Oh, yes, I am, Peter. You don't understand what it is I'm doing now. But later, you see, after Good Friday and after Easter, you'll understand. No, Lord. No. Still he protested. Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. I'm not going to allow you to serve me. Well, then, Peter... If I don't wash your feet, then you can have no part of me. Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head as well. What, what Jesus was trying to tell to Peter, he's trying to tell with, to each one of us, those of us who are willing to look at the towel. We cannot have a part of God if we do not allow Jesus Christ to serve us. Unless we are willing to take the gifts that he offers, the gifts of forgiveness, the gift of repentance, the gift of beginning all over again, then we can have no part of God. It is only as we allow him to serve us that we become one with him. This is what the towel taught those disciples. And this is why I want a towel in the front of every church, so that when everyone comes to worship, 
He is humbled by the fact not that he is doing God a great service by being there, but he can get the message that God is serving him by allowing him to be there. The test of the towel. It taught those disciples and can teach the disciples of any year the total picture of God. It makes us not only re-examine our concepts of our Lord and Savior, but like those early disciples, it makes us and requires us to re-evaluate our idea of greatness. Greatness. You see, like many of us, those disciples felt that an individual becomes great when other people out here say that he is great. That a man is great when he can stand tall enough and be big enough. That an individual becomes great when he gets the right job, when he associates with the right great people, when, when he gets the publicity and the promise. Then he is great. What silly games these mortals play. All of us know that's not greatness, yet we play the game. In 1954, I think it was, when the World Council of Churches was meeting in Evanston, Illinois. A very remarkable and great and sad thing happened. A man who was considered a great leader in the Church of India arrived on the railroad platform either there in Evanston or Chicago with no less than 11 pieces of luggage. And they had volunteered from the churches in that area laymen who did taxi service from the railroad station to the hotels. And this great religious leader waited until someone came to carry his bags. And finally, a man came who was much older, white-haired, and this man, the Indian leader, because of his prestige and because of his religious ideas and because of his dignity, he stood by and waited while this much older, white-haired man loaded all eleven pieces of baggage into the car. Chris, there's nothing wrong with it until you get to think about greatness. And especially when you realize that that white-haired, much older man was the same individual who gave the two million dollars to build McGraw Hall where the plenary sessions of the World Council of Churches was taking place. Now, when you hear things like this, you see, you have no question in your mind whatsoever as to who, in the sight of God, and in the sight of man is the greatest of these two individuals. But still, we continue to play these games where we try to be greater than someone else. Like the disciples, we debate and get involved in conversations with our friends arguing over which one of us is really the greatest. And that, you see, is what the disciples were doing, playing that same game that we play 
When Jesus rose from supper, took off his cloak, girded himself with a towel, and went and washed these arguing men's feet. And therefore, the first time, these men were silent in their argument. These men suddenly realized the meaning of greatness. They had for three years been in the presence of a great man. Never did a man talk like this man Jesus. None of their scribes or authorities had such strength and power as did this man. But never did they see him greater than when individually he knelt before each one of them. And when they looked down into the eyes of Jesus, as he washed their feet, they realized that they were in the presence of greatness whose sandal strap they could not even loosen or tie. They saw for the first time that greatness is not how tall a man can stand, but rather it's how low a man can stoop in service. As Leonard Griffith says in his book, to a Christian, greatness is like an inverted pyramid. The further you go down in service, the higher you actually become. Greatness is service. In the eyes of God and through the teaching of Jesus Christ, the greatest individual who ever lives is the servant amongst us. The individual who is not too proud, who is not so great, that he is not willing to stoop his knee and dirty his hand. And yes, to be in that vulnerable position where someone can shower discernment upon him and kick him in the face because he's kneeling at the feet. This is the sign of greatness. This is what makes the Albert Schweitzers, not because he's a great, he was a great man in medicine and in music and philosophy, but because he was willing to crawl up on the hut and nail the shingle roof where there was a leak. This is what makes a man great when he voluntarily, not because he has to, but when he voluntarily is willing to take upon himself the form of a serpent, when he is willing to empty himself and become a slave in the name of Jesus Christ. They had never seen that before. But they saw it that day because of a towel. One of the reasons that I'd like a towel in the front of this church is so that everyone, when he comes in here, realizes he is great. Only when he is like his Christ and girds himself with a towel and is willing to serve his fellow man. It was the towel test that made the disciples realize the meaning of discipleship. Caused them to re-examine their concept of God, re-evaluate their idea of greatness. It caused them to realize the true meaning of discipleship. Jesus, on this last night, realized that if his cause was going to get anywhere and his influence was to be perpetuated, it would have to be because of those twelve men. His only hope in seeing that his way was propagated, that his truth was taught, that his message became everlasting, 
was placed within the hands and the destiny of those twelve men. And notice on that night what Jesus gave unto those men. He gave them no organizational blueprint as to how to do it. He gave them no educational programs telling them what they should know. He did not even give them, give them efficiency techniques as to how to win friends and influence people for Christ. He gave them an example. An example with a towel. That's all he gave them. Saying, this I have done unto you, and this is what you are to do unto one another. And he gave them this idea of discipleship, which is supposed to still be in the church today, but which I happen to notice is sadly neglecting in many of the ideas and philosophies, not only of our own church, but of churches all over the world. That discipleship does not mean just being saved. Discipleship means that you are willing to become a servant. This means that you are willing to heal the sick, to help not only the wicked, but the weak. That you are willing to do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly as a servant in the sight of God. A discipleship, discipleship is not just sitting upon our walls, thanking God that he has saved us. Discipleship is taking upon ourselves the form of a serpent, a servant kneeling down before our fellow man, willing in the name of Jesus Christ to give a cup of water, a crust of bread, or go visit him in jail. Inasmuch as you have done it under the least of one of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me.